Section 4 of Inquiries into Human Faculty and Its Development by Francis Galton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Leon Harvey. Chapter 20. Colour Representation. Highest. Perfectly distinct. Bright and natural. First suboctyle. White cloth. Blue china. Argand coffee pot. Buff stand with Sienna drawing, toast, all clear. First octile, all details seem perfectly. First quartile, colours distinct and natural till I begin to puzzle over them. Middlemost, fairly distinct, they're not certain that they are accurately recalled. Last quartile, natural but very indistinct. Last octile, faint, can only recall colours by a specific effort for each. Last suboctile, power is nil. Lowest, power is nil. It may seem surprising that one out of every sixteen persons who are accustomed to use accurate representations should speak of their mental imagery as perfectly clear and bright. But it is so, and many details are added in various returns emphasizing the assertion. One of the commonest of these is to the effect, if I could draw, I am sure I could draw perfectly from my mental image, that some artists, such as Blake, have really done so is beyond dispute. But I have little doubt that there is an unconscious exaggeration in these returns. My reasons for saying so is that I have also returns from artists who say as follows. My imagery is so clear that if I had been unable to draw, I should have unhesitantly said that I could draw from it. A foremost painter of the present day has used that expression. He finds deficiencies and gaps when he tries to draw from his mental vision. There is perhaps some analogy between these images and those of faces in the fire. One may often fancy an exceedingly well-marked face or other object in the burning coals, but probably everybody will find, as I have done, that it is impossible to draw it, for as soon as its outlines are seriously studied, the fancy flies away. Mr. Flinders Pitree, a contributor of interesting experiments on kindred subjects to nature, informs me that he habitually works out sums by aid of an imaginary sliding rule, which he sets in the desired way and reads off mentally. He does not usually visualise the whole rule, but only that part of it which he is at the moment concerned. See plate 2, figure 34, where, however, the artist has put in the divisions very correctly. I think this is one of the most striking cases of accurate visualising power it is possible to imagine. I have a few returns from chess players who play games blindfolded, but the powers of such men to visualise the separate boards with different sets of men on the different boards, some ivory, some wood, and so forth, are well known, and I need not repeat them. I will rather give the following extract from an article in the Paul Moore Gazette, 27th June, 1882, on the recent chess tournament at Vienna. The modern feats of blindfolded play, without sight of board, greatly surpassed those of twenty years ago. Poor Morphy, the American, was the first who made an essential study of this kind of display, playing some seven or eight games blindfolded and simultaneously against various inferior opponents, and making lucrative exhibitions in this way. His abilities in this line created a scare among other rivals who had not practiced this test in memory. Since this day, many chess players who are gifted with strong and clear memory and power of picturing to the mind the ideal board and men have carried this branch of exhibition play far beyond Morphy's pitch, and contemporaneously with its development, it has become acknowledged that skill in blindfold play is not an absolute test of similarly relative powers over the board, e.g. Blackburn and Zuckertort can play as many as 16 or even 20 blindfold games at a time, and win about 80% of them at least. Steinitz, who beats them both in match play, does not essay more than six blindfold at a time. Mason does not, to our knowledge, make any speciality at all of this sport. 
I have many cases of persons mentally reading off scores when playing the pianoforte, or manuscript when they are making speeches. One statesman has assured me that a certain hesitation in utterance which he has at times is due to his being played by the image of his manuscript speech with its original erasures and corrections. He cannot lay the ghost, and he puzzles in trying to decipher it. Some few persons see mentally imprint every word that is uttered. They attend to the visual equivalent and not to the sound of the words, and they read them off usually as from a long imaginary strip of paper, such as is unwound from telegraphic instruments. The experiences differ in detail as to size and kind of type, colour of paper, and so forth, but are always the same in the same person. A well-known frequenter of the Royal Institution tells me that he often craves for an absence of visual perceptions. They are so brilliant and persistent. The Reverend George Henslow speaks of their extreme restlessness. They oscillate, rotate and change. It is a mistake to suppose that sharp sight is accompanied by a clear visual memory. I have not a few instances in which the independence of the two faculties is emphatically commented on, and I have at least one clear case where great interest in outlines and accurate appreciation of straightness, squareness and the like is unaccompanied by the power of visualising. Neither does a faculty go without dreaming. I have cases where it is powerful, and at the same time where dreams are rare and faint or altogether absent. One friend tells me these dreams have not the hundredth part of the vigour of his waking fancies. The visualising and identifying powers are by no means necessarily combined. A distinguished writer on metaphysical topics assures me that he is exceptionally quick at recognising a face that he has seen before, but that he cannot call up a mental image of any face with clearness. Some persons have the power of combining in a single perception more than can be seen at any one moment by the two eyes. It is needless to insist on the fact that all who have two eyes see stereoscopically and therefore somewhat round a corner. Children, who can focus their eyes on very near objects, must be able to compromise in a single mental image much more than a half of any small object they are examining. Animals such as hares, whose eyes are set more on the side of the head than ours, must be able to perceive at one, and in the same instant, more of a panorama than we can. I find that a few persons can, by what they often describe as a kind of touch sight, visualise at the same moment all round the image of a solid body. Many can do so nearly, but not altogether round that of a terrestrial globe. An eminent mineralogist assures me that he is able to imagine simultaneously all the sights of a crystal with which he is familiar. I may be allowed to quote a curious faculty of my own in respect to this. It is exercise only occasionally and in dreams, or rather in nightmares, but under those circumstances I am perfectly conscious of embracing an entire sphere in a single perception. It appears to lie within my mental eyeball and to be viewed centripetally. This power of comprehension is practically attained in many cases by indirect methods. It is a common feat to take in the whole surroundings of an imagined room with such a rapid mental sweep as to leave some doubt whether it has not been viewed simultaneously. Some people have the habit of viewing objects as though they were partly transparent, thus if they so dispose a globe in their imagination as to see both its north and south poles at the same time, they will not be able to see its equatorial parts. They can also perceive all the rooms of an imaginary house by a single mental glance, the walls and floors being as if made of glass. A fourth class of persons have the habit of recalling scenes, not from the point of view whence they were observed, but from a distance, and they visualise their own selves as actors on the mental stage. By one or other of these ways, the power of seeing the whole of an object, and not merely one aspect of it, is possessed by many persons. 
The place where the image appears to lie differs much. Most persons see it in an indefinable sort of way. Others see it in front of the eye. Others at a distance corresponding to reality. There exists a power which is rare naturally, but can, I believe, be acquired with much difficulty of projecting a mental picture upon a piece of paper, and of holding it fast there so that it can be outlined with a pencil. To this I shall recur. Images usually do not become stronger by dwelling on them. The first idea is commonly the most vigorous, but this is not always the case. Sometimes the mental view of a locality is inseparably connected with the sense of a position as regards the points of the compass, real or imaginary. I have received full and curious descriptions from very different sources of this strong geographical tendency, and in one or two cases I have reason to think it allied to a considerable faculty of geographical comprehension. The power of visualizing is higher in the female sex than in the male, and is somewhat, but not much, higher in public schoolboys than in men. After maturity is reached, and further advance of age does not seem to dim the faculty, but rather the reverse, judging from numerous statements to that effect, but advancing years are somewhat accompanied by growing habit of hard abstract thinking, and in these cases, not uncommon among those whom I have questioned, the faculty undoubtedly becomes impaired. There is reason to believe that it is very high in some young children, who seem to spend years of difficulty in distinguishing between the subjective and objective world. Language and book learning certainly tend to dull it. The visualizing faculty is a natural gift, and, like all natural gifts, has a tendency to be inherited. In this faculty, the tendency to inheritance is exceptionally strong, as I have abundant evidence to prove, especially in respect to certain rather rare peculiarities, of which I shall speak in the next chapter, and which, when they exist at all, are usually found among two, three or more brothers and sisters, parents, children, uncles and aunts, and cousins. Since families differ so much in respect to this gift, we may suppose that races would also differ, and there can be no doubt that such is the case. I hardly like to refer to civilized nations because their natural faculties are too much modified by education to allow of their being appraised in an off-hand fashion. I may, however, speak of the French, who appear to possess the visualizing faculty in a high degree, the peculiar ability to show in pre-arranging ceremonials and feats of all kinds and their undoubted genius for tactics and strategy show that they are able to foresee events with unusual clearness. Their ingenuity in all technical contrivances is an additional testimony in the same direction, and so is their singular clearness of expression. Their phrase, figure as vous, or picture to yourself, seems to express their dominant mode of perception. Our equivalent of imagine is ambiguous. It is among uncivilized races that natural differences in the visualizing faculty are most conspicuous. Many of them make carvings and rude illustrations, but only a few have the gift of carrying a picture in their mind's eye, judging by the completeness and firmness of their designs, which show no trace of having been elaborated in that step-by-step -step manner which is characteristic of draughtsmen who are not natural artists. Among the races who are thus gifted are the commonly despised, but, as I confidently maintain from personal knowledge of them, the much underrated Bushmen of South Africa, they are no doubt deficient in the natural instincts necessary to civilization for they detest a regular life. They are inveterate thieves, and are incapable of withstanding the temptation of strong drink. On the other hand, they have few superiors among barbarians in the ingenious methods by which they supply the wants of a difficult existence, and in the effectiveness and nattiness of their accoutrements. One of their habits is to draw pictures on the walls of caves of men and animals, and to colour them with ochre. These drawings were once numerous, 
but they have been sadly destroyed by advancing colonization and few of them and indeed few wild bushmen now exist fortunately a large and valuable collection of facsimiles of bushmen art was made before it became too late by mr stow of the cape colony who has very late sent some specimens of them to this country in the hope that means might be found for the publication of the entire series among the many pictures of animals in each of the large sheets full of them i was particularly struck with one of an eland as giving a just idea of the precision and purity of their best work others again were exhibited last summer at the anthropological institute by mr hutchinson the method by which the bushman draw is described in the following extract from a letter written to me by dr mann the well-known authority on south african matters of science the boy to whom he refers belonged to a wild tribe living in caves in the drakenberg who plundered outlying farms and were pursued by the neighbouring colonists he was wounded and captured then sent to hospital and subsequently taken into service he was under dr mann's observation in the year eighteen sixty and has recently died to the great regret of his employer mr proudfoot to whom he became a valuable servant dr mann writes as follows this lad was very skilful in the proverbial bushman art of drawing animal figures and upon several occasions I introduced him to show me how this was managed among his people. He invariably began by jotting down upon paper or on a slate a number of isolated dots, which presented no connection or trace of outline of any kind to the uninitiated eye, but looked like the stars scattered promiscuously in the sky. Having, with much deliberation, satisfied himself of the sufficiency of these dots, he forthwith began to run a free, bold line from one to the other, and as he did so the form of an animal, horse buffalo elephant or some kind of antelope gradually developed itself this was invariably done with a free hand and with such unerring accuracy of touch that no correction of a line was at any time attempted i understood from the lad that this was the plan which was invariably pursued by his kindred in making their clever pictures it is impossible i think for a drawing to be made on this method unless the artist had a clear image in his mind's eye of what he was about to draw and was able in some degree to project it upon the paper or slate other living races have the gift of drawing but none more so than the eskimo i will therefore speak of these and not of the australian and tasmanian pictures nor of the still ruder performances of the old inhabitants of guiana nor of those of some north american tribes as the iroquois the eskimos are geographers by instinct and appear to see vast tracts of country mapped out in their heads from the multitude of illustrations of their map drawing powers i may mention one of those included in the journals of captain hall at page two hundred twenty four which were published in eighteen seventy nine by the united states government under the editorship of professor j e nurse it is a facsimile of a chart drawn by an eskimo who was a thorough barbarian in the accepted sense of the world that is to say he spoke no language besides his own uncouth tongue he was wholly uneducated according to our modern ideas and he lived in what we should call a savage fashion the man drew from memory a chart of the region over which he had at one time or another gone in his canoe it extended from pond's bay at latitude seventy three degrees to fort churchill at latitude fifty eight forty four over a distance of a straight line of more than nine hundred and sixty nautical or one thousand one hundred english miles the coast being so indented by arms of the sea that its length is six times as great on comparing this rough eskimo outline with the admiralty chart of eighteen seventy their accordance is remarkable i have seen many m s wrote maps made by travellers a few years since when the scientific exploration of the world was much less advanced than it is now and i can confidently say that i have never known of any traveller white or brown civilised or uncivilised in africa asia or australia 
who being unprovided with surveying instruments and trusted to his memory alone has produced a chart comparable in extent and accuracy to that of this barbarous eskimo the aptitude of the eskimos to draw is abundantly shown by the numerous illustration in rink's work all of which were made by self-taught men and are thoroughly realistic so much for the wild races of the present day but even the eskimo are equalled in their power of drawing by the men of old times in ages so far gone by that the interval that separates them from our own may be measured in perhaps hundreds of thousands of years when europe was mostly ice-bound a race who in the opinion of all anthropologists was closely allied to the modern eskimo lived in caves in the more habitable places many broken relics of that race have been found some few of these are of bone engraved with flints or carved into figures and among these are representations of the mammoth elk and reindeer which if made by an english labourer with the much better implements at his command would certainly attract local attention and lead to his being properly educated and in much likelihood to his becoming a considerable artist if he had intellectual powers to match it is not at all improbable that these prehistoric men had the same geographical instincts as the modern eskimo whom they closely resemble in every known respect if so it is perfectly possible that scraps of charts scratched on bone or stone of prehistoric europe when the distribution of land sea and ice was very different to what it is now may still exist buried underground and may reward the zeal of some future cave explorer there is abundant evidence that the visualizing faculty admits of being developed by education the testimony on which i would lay a special stress is derived from the published experiences of m lecoq de bois baudin late director of the ecole nationale de dessin in paris which related in his education des memoirs pittoresques he trained his pupils with extraordinary success beginning with the simplest figures they were made to study the models thoroughly before they tried to draw them from memory one favourite expedient was to associate the sight memory with the muscular memory by making his pupils follow at the distance the outlines of the figures with a pencil held in their hands after three or four months practice their visual memory became greatly strengthened they had no difficulty in summoning images at will in holding them steady and in drawing them their copies were executed with marvellous fidelity as attested by a commission of the institute appointed in eighteen fifty two to inquire into the matter of which the eminent painter horace fernet was a member the present slade professor of fine arts at the university college m Legros, was a pupil of m de bourdin he had expressed to me his indebtedness to the system and he has assured me of his own success in teaching others in a somewhat similar way Colonel Moncrief informs me that when wintering in 1877 near Fort Garry in North America, young Indians occasionally came to his quarters, and that he found them much interested in any pictures or prints that were put before them. On one of these occasions he saw an Indian tracing the outline of a print from the illustrated news very carefully with the point of his knife. The reason he gave for this odd manoeuvre was that he would remember the better how to carve it when he returned home i could mention instances within my own experience in which the visualizing faculty has become strengthened by practice notably one of an eminent electrical engineer who had the power of recalling form with unusual precision but not colour a few weeks after he had replied to my questions he told me that my inquiries had induced him to practise his colour memory and that he had done so with such success that he was become quite an adept at it and that the newly acquired power was a source of much pleasure to him a useful faculty easily developed by practice is that of retaining a retinal picture a scene is flashed upon the eye the memory of it persists 
and details which escaped observation during the brief time when it was actually seen may be analysed and studied at leisure in the subsequent vision the memories we should aim at acquiring are however such as are based on a thorough understanding of the objects observed in no case is this more surely effected than in the process of mechanical drawing where the intended structure has to be portrayed so exactly in plan elevation side view and sections that the workman has simply to copy the drawing in metal wood or stone as the case may be it is undoubtedly the fact that mechanicians engineers and architects usually possess the faculty of seeing mental images with remarkable clearness and precision a few dots like those used by the bushmen give great assistance in creating an imaginary picture as proved by a general habit of working out ideas by the help of marks and rude lines the use of dolls by children also testifies to the value of an object support in the construction of mental images the doll serves as a kind of skeleton for the child to clothe with fantastic attributes and the less individuality the doll has the more it is appreciated by the child who can the better utilize it as a lay figure in many different characters the chief art of strengthening visual as well as every other form of memory lies in multiplying associations the healthiest memory being that in which all the associations are logical and toward which all the senses occur in their due proportions it is wonderful how much the vividness of recollection is increased when two or more lines of association are simultaneously excited thus the inside of a known house is much better visualized when we are looking at its outside than when we are away from it and some chess players have told me that it is easier for them to play a game from memory when they have a blank board before them than when they have not there is an absence of flexibility in the mental imagery of most persons they find that the first image they have acquired of any sense is apt to hold its place tenaciously in spite of subsequent need of correction they find a difficulty in shifting their mental view of an object and examining it at pleasure in different positions if they see an object equally often in many positions the memories combine and confuse one another forming a composite blur which they cannot dissect into its components they are less able to visualize the features of intimate friends than those of persons of whom they have caught only a single glance many such persons have expressed to me their grief at finding themselves powerless to recall the looks of their dear relations whom they had lost while they had no difficulty in recollecting faces that were uninteresting to them others have a complete mastery over their mental images they can call up the figure of a friend and make it sit on a chair or stand up at will they can make it turn around and attitudinize in any way as by mounting it on a bicycle or compelling it to perform gymnastic feats on a trapeze they are able to build up elaborate geometric structures bit by bit in their mind's eye and abstract or alter at will and at leisure this free action of a vivid visualizing faculty is of much importance in the connection with the higher processes of generalizing thought that is commonly put to no such purpose as may be easily explained by an example suppose a person suddenly to accost another with the following words i want to tell you about a boat what is the idea that the word boat would be likely to call up i tried the experiment with this result one person a young lady said that she immediately saw the image of a rather large boat pushing off from the shore and that it was full of ladies and gentlemen the ladies being dressed in white and blue it is obvious that a tendency to give so specific an interpretation to a general word is absolutely opposed to philosophic thought another person who was accustomed to philosophize said that the word boat had aroused no definite image because he had purposely held his mind in suspense he had exerted himself not to lapse into any one of the special ideas that he felt the word boat was ready to call up such as skiff wherry barge launch punt or dinghy 
much more did you refuse to think of any one of these with any particular freight or form any particular point of view a habit of suppressing mental imagery must therefore characterize men who deal much with abstract ideas and as the power of dealing easily and firmly with these ideas in the surest criterion of a highest order of intellect you should expect that the visualizing faculty would be starved by disuse among philosophers and this is precisely what i found on inquiry to be the case but there is no reason why it should be so if the faculty is free in its action and not try to reproduce hard and persistent forms it may then produce generalized pictures out of its past experiences quite automatically it has no difficulty in reducing images to the same scale and to our constant practice in watching objects as they approach or recede and consequently grow or diminish in apparent size it readily shifts images to any desired point of the field of view owing to our habit of looking at bodies in motion to the right or left upward or downward it selects images that present the same aspect either by a simple act of memory or by a feat of imagination that forces them into the desired position and it has little or no difficulty in reversing them from right to left as is seen in a looking-glass in illustration of these generalized mental images let us recur to the boat and suppose the speaker to continue as follows the boat was a four-oared racing boat it was passing quickly to the left just in front of me and the men were bending forward to take a fresh stroke now at this point of the story the listener ought to have a picture well before his eye he ought to have the distinctness of a real four-oar going to the left at the moment when many of its details still remain unheeded such as the dresses of the men and their individual features it would be the generic image of a four-oar formed by the combination to a single picture of a great many sight memories of those boats in the highest minds a descriptive word is sufficient to evoke crowds of shadowy associations each striving to manifest itself when they differ so much from one another as to be unfitted for combination into a single idea there will be a conflict each being prevented by the rest from the obtaining sole possession of the field of consciousness there could therefore be no definite imagery so long as the aggregate of all the pictures that the words suggested of objects presenting similar aspects reduced to the same size and accurately superposed result in a blur but a picture would gradually evolve as qualifications were added to the word and it would attain to the distinctness and vividness of a generic image long before the word had been so restricted as to be individualized if the intellect be slow though correct in its operations the associations will be few and the generalized image based on insufficient data if the visualizing power be faint the generalized image will be indistinct i cannot discover any close relation between high visualizing power and the intellectual faculties than between verbal memory and those same faculties that it must afford immense help in some professions stand to reason but in ordinary social life the possession of a high visualizing power as of a high verbal memory may pass quite unobserved i have to the last failed in anticipating the character of the answers that my friends would give to my inquiries judging from my previous knowledge of them though i am bound to say that having received their answers i could usually persuade myself that they were justified by my recollections of their previous sayings and conduct generally the faculty is undoubtedly useful in a high degree to inventive mechanicians and the great majority of those whom i have questioned have spoken of their powers as very considerable they invent the machines as they walk and see them in height breadth and depth as real objects and they can also see them in action in fact a periodic action of any kind appears to be easily recalled but the powers of other men are considerably less thus an engineer officer who has himself great power of visual memory and who has superintended the mathematical education of cadets doubts if one in ten can visualize an object in three dimensions 
I should have thought the faculty would be common among geometricians, but many of the highest seem able somehow to get on without much of it. There is a curious dictum of Napoleon I quoted in Hume's Precis of Modern Tactics, page 15, of which I can neither find the original authority nor do I fully understand the meaning. He is reported to have said that there are some who, from some physical or moral peculiarity of character, form a picture, tableau, of everything. No matter what knowledge, intellect, courage, or good qualities they may have, these men are unfit to command. It is possible that tableau should be construed rather in the sense of pictorial composition, which, like an epigrammatic sentence, may be very complete and effective, but not altogether true. There can, however, be no doubt as to the utility of the visualizing faculty what is duly subordinated to the higher intellectual operations. A visual image is a most perfect form of mental representation wherever the shape, position, and relations of objects in space are concerned. It is of importance in every handicraft and profession where design is required. The best workmen are those who visualize a whole of what they purpose to do before they take a tool in their hands. The village smith and the carpenter who are employed in odd jobs employ it no less for their work than the mechanician, the engineer, and the architect. The lady's maid who arranges a new dress requires it for the same reason as a decorator employed on a palace, or the agent who lays out great estates. Strategists, artists of all denominations, physicists who contrive new experiments, and in short all who do not follow routine have need of it. The pleasure its use can afford is immense. I have many correspondents who say that the delight of recalling beautiful scenery and great works of art is the highest that they know. They carry whole picture galleries in their minds. A bookish and wordy education tends to repress this valuable gift of nature, a faculty that is of importance in all technical and artistic occupations, that gives accuracy to our perceptions and justness to our generalizations, is starved by lazy disuse, instead of being cultivated judiciously in such a way as will, on the whole, bring the best return. I believe that a serious study of the best method of developing and utilizing this faculty, without prejudice to the practice of abstract thought in symbols, is one of the many pressing desiderata in the yet unformed science of education. End of chapter 20 End of section 4